0: Good morning and welcome back to coffee books we are continuing on today in the curious barista's guide to coffee written by tristan stevenson at the top of page 16. the drink of the new world at the beginning of the 18th century coffee consumption in europe was higher than it had ever been and european nations were becoming increasingly nervous about their reliance on coffee shipped from mocha through the trading port of venice The Dutch were the first to take action when they successfully cultivated seedlings in India's Malabar region and in Dutch Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and then in 1699 took some seedlings to Batavia, the former name of the present day capital, Jakarta, in Java. Around a decade later, 360 kilograms, or 800 pounds, of Dutch grown Java coffee arrived in Amsterdam and sold for a very high price. The Arab monopoly on coffee had been broken and before too long the Dutch megacorporation known as the VOC Verenigde Compagnie was shipped, shipping over half of all the coffee consumed in Europe from its colonial ports in Java a city that would be forever synonymous with coffee Around the same time that the Dutch began growing coffee in Indonesia, the French took small trees to the island of Bourbon, now known as Reunion, which lies 800 kilometers or 500 miles east of Madagascar, in the Indian Ocean. Some reports suggest that these trees came from Java, while others suggest that they were a gift from a Yemeni sultan. Other reports even claim that coffee was indigenous to the island. However it got there, It was a pivotal moment in the development of coffee as we know it today, because the tree mutated into a new variety that later became known as bourbon. Bourbon varieties produce around 20% more fruit than typical varieties, see page 24. And when one French official visited bourbon in 1711, he found wild coffee trees of a height of 10 to 12 feet, full of fruit. It took another 150 years before the variety was planted in Brazil But thanks to the clean acidity and balance that bourbon varieties exhibited of which there are now nearly two dozen including mutations and hybrids they are among the most highly respected varieties in the world today the netherlands was also probably the first nation to cultivate coffee in the west indies having sent plants to its serenum colony in the guianas in northeastern south americas as early as 1713. The more popular legend of coffee's arrival in the Americas occurred seven years later, however, in 1720, when Gabriel de Clieu, a captain in the French Navy, transported a single coffee plant across the Atlantic. The story of the escapade is detailed in his personal account, Année Letraire, published in 1774. If de Clieu's is to be believed, or even if not for that matter, then Hollywood is surely missing a trick, as it turns out to be a tale of blockbuster proportions. Desclus correctly determined that coffee would grow just fine in any region where sugarcane flourished, so the French island of Martinique was a sure bet. However, our hero didn't own a coffee plant himself, and would first need to acquire one. The slight hitch was that at the time, there was only one known example in all of France, a gift from the mayor of Amsterdam to King Louis XIV, and it was contained within the greenhouses of the French royal gardens. De Clou used his good looks and charm to seduce a local lady of good quality and persuaded her to court one of the royal physicians. His arms sufficiently twisted, the physician stole the plant from the greenhouse and gave it to De Clou. Wasting no time, De Clou secreted himself and his prize, safely contained within a terrarium of his own making, aboard a French Navy ship destined for Martinique. What perils genuinely befell him will remain a mystery, but according to his account, He safeguarded his plants through storms, attack by Tunisian pirates, attempted theft by a Dutch spy who apparently managed to rip a few leaves off the plant, starvation, the threat of sea monsters, and much more besides. For some weeks during the voyage, the rationing of drinking water was in effect and De Clou was even forced to share his ration with his beloved sapling. None of it was in vain though, as De Clou successfully planted the tree in Martinique and seeded new plants. The numbers vary wildly, but one count of coffee trees on the island, a mere nine years later, totaled around 3 million. Following the success of the coffee trees in Martinique, other French islands took cuttings or were gifted coffee seedlings. Coffee plantations around the Caribbean and Central America grew at an exponential rate. Coffee hit Colombia in 1723, Brazil in 1727, allegedly smuggled in a bouquet of flowers that was gifted from the wife. Of the governor of French Guiana to a Brazilian lieutenant colonel, Jamaica in 1728, Venezuela in 1730, Hispaniola, present-day Dominican Republic, and Haiti in 1735, Guatemala in 1747, and Cuba in 1748. By 1780, San Domingo and Haiti provided no less than half of the world's supply of coffee. Virtually all the coffee in the Americas, and indeed nearly all the coffee in commercial production at the time, could trace its lineage to a single tree planted in the conservatory of King Louis XIV in 1713. Global Domination The development of sugar beet as an alternative to sugar cane in the early 1800s caused the price of that most reliable of New World crops to plummet. Demand for coffee in Europe remained on the increase, however, so many of the colonies in Central and South America ramped up production and provided a ready supply of green beans. If the events of the Boston Tea Party on 6 December 1773 wasn't enough to get America drinking coffee, the War of 1812, which temporarily cut off tea shipments, as well as seeing America adopt all things French, including coffee, was enough to secure coffee as the national drink. No one gained more from this than Brazil, where coffee was seen less as agriculture and more as industry, an approach that remains largely in place even today. Huge swaths of land in the Paraiba River area, near the city of Rio de Janeiro, were swallowed up to coffee plantations, employing the efforts of an entire legion of slaves and lining the pockets of the super-rich coffee barons. By the 1920s, Brazil claimed up to 80% of the world's coffee supply. Today, it is around 35%. Unfortunately, the themes of slavery, inequality, and capitalism were not unique to Brazilian coffee history. The passage of this black gold through the 19th and 20th centuries sees, time and time again, the interference of the Europeans and later on the Americans who leveraged their economic might to quietly manipulate or brashly and unashamedly bend a coffee producing nation to their will. For many of these countries, coffee became a ball and chain that bridled them in their early developmental stages and served only to fulfill the needs of wealthy western nations. In many African coffee producing countries, colonialism, mostly under the British and Belgians, crippled and constricted development. The likes of Kenya and Malawi had no ownership or control over their farms, but things were even worse in Burundi where, in 1933, every farmer in the Belgian-controlled Central African nation was forced to grow a minimum of 50 coffee trees. Even when decolonization began after World War II, many of the world's coffee-producing countries continued to struggle through civil uprising, social upheaval, economic depression, political instability, and foreign trade embargoes, not to mention coffee leaf rust, see page 28, coffee market instability, and drought. And in far too many cases, the newly installed governments of these damaged nations were no better than the ones that had come before. The stories of such acts make for depressing reading, such as the indigenous families of Guatemala who were displaced from their land to make way for coffee plantations or the indigo farmers of El Salvador, who received little or no compensation when their small holdings were seized by the state to grow coffee. It wasn't all doom and gloom, of course, but squeaky clean success stories are few and far between. In Central America, it is Costa Rica that stands as the pinup coffee nation, and this is partly thanks to a government that has, for almost 200 years, gently encouraged its citizens to grow coffee, at one time, they even gave away coffee seeds and land for free. In general, the 20th century saw a continuous rise in demand for coffee. Coffee consumption in the U.S. grew more or less every year, reaching a peak in 1946 when the average American was consuming nearly 1 kilograms or 2.2 pounds a month, twice that of the figures for 1900. The popularity of instant soluble coffee has increased American imports, and this in turn drove the market for cheaper, robusta coffee, see page 24, which has helped put coffee producing countries like Vietnam on the map. Thank you for listening, and I'll continue on next morning in the middle of page 19.